Okay, guys, so two weeks ago, we started a new sermon series through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, and I've entitled this series, Reality Used to Be a Friend of Mine. And the reason why I've called this series that title is because of the fact that there comes a point in all of our lives where we realize that life is terrible, (laughs) that reality can sometimes suck, that reality isn't as friendly as we thought it used to be when we were much younger. The world isn't like Disney movies where there's a happily ever after. No, we grew up and we realize that the reality that we thought was so friendly on the silver screen in those cartoons is simply not true. Reality is no friend of ours. Reality does hurt and it does suck. And the question that I want to answer throughout this series is, how do we as followers of Jesus learn how to live in this reality rather than running away from it, rather than avoiding it, so that we can do some good as we are living in it right here and right now? Well, our passage is going to answer that question for us in a very interesting way by telling us about an experiment, a test that the author of this book, King Solomon, once conducted for us, okay? And as we study this text that recounts for us this, this experiment that he did, we're going to see three things from our passage, okay? So we're going to jump right in into the message. Three things that I'd like to share with you from our passage in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 1 through 11. First, I want to talk about the hypothesis that Solomon tests. Number two, I want to talk about the observations that Solomon discovered in his test. And finally, I want to end it with the conclusion to Solomon's test, the hypothesis, the observation, and the conclusion to Solomon's test or his experiment, okay? So let's jump right in. First, the hypothesis Solomon test. You know, one of the things that you're going to notice as you read throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is how often you see a word recurring over and over and over again throughout this book, and that is the word vanity, Vanity, or as some translation puts it, meaninglessness. You see it twice in our passage today. You see it in verse 1 and you see it in verse 11. It's used twice. And that word vanity or meaninglessness is actually an English translation of the original Hebrew word hebel. Hebel. And that word hebel literally means breath of air. And if you were here two weeks ago when I first talked about this, When Solomon is talking about that life is literally a breath of air, he's specifically thinking about a kind of breath of air that you and I are very familiar with, right? It's a breath of air that goes like this, right? The sigh, the sigh, you know the sigh, you know that quiet and weightless breath of air that weighs nothing but in your heart, carries the full heavy weight of all your troubles, all of your fears, all of your anxieties, all of your frustrations with life. So when Solomon is telling us throughout the book of Ecclesiastes that life is hebel, life is a breath of air, life is a sigh, life is meaningless, he's simply referring to life the way that we already know it to be, which is life sucks, reality sucks where it makes us just want to go all the time. And when you are confronted with this reality of how difficult, how hard, how bitter reality can be, one of the recurring reactions that all of us have when we find ourselves in this situation is, what can get us relief? What can make us get some sort of peace and and restoration and healing to this problem of bitterness and frustration and pain that we go through in life? You know, I'm at an age in life, I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but I'm at a certain age where if I eat past 7.30, I know I'm going to wake back up at 1.30 in the morning because I'm going to have incredible heartburn, right? It feels like a heart attack. Yeah, you laugh at me now, you wait, you know, 10, 15 years, it's going to happen, all right? I'll just say, Hwadmangsu and alcohol seltzer money, right? But I'm telling you now, every now and then, if I eat too late, and if I eat fatty food, spicy food, red meat, 
right? 7.30, past 7.30, I wake up at 1.30, I'm like, oh, right? And I'm like, I need relief right away. There comes a point in all of our lives, and you guys are old enough to have already gone through it, where you're going to feel like you're going through existential heartburn. Reality is going to burn your life, and you're going to feel like, I need relief right now. The question is, what can we look to? What can we turn to for immediate relief when we feel reality sucks so much? Well, Solomon is going to show us one of the ways he's tried to answer that question by telling us of an experiment he once did, a test that he tells us in verse 1. Let's read it again in our passage where he says this. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Solomon has decided to conduct an experiment on pleasure. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, in light of this experiment, what is the hypothesis in regards to pleasure that he wants to test? In other words, what theory of pleasure does he want to verify to see if it's actually true? Well, I can think of no better... uh, No better articulation of this hypothesis than the one that was once used by the character of Lord Henry in the very famous book, The Picture of Dorian Gray. Listen to what Lord Henry says in that book and how he describes pleasure. He says this, If one man were to live out his life fully and completely, were to give form to every feeling, expression to every thought, reality to every dream, I believe that the world would gain such a fresh impulse of joy that we would forget all the maladies of medievalism and return to the Hellenic ideal. But instead, we are punished by our refusals. Every impulse that we strive to strangle broods in the mind and poisons us. The only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. Resist it and your soul grows sick with longing for the thing it has forbidden itself, with desire for what its monstrous laws have made monstrous and unlawful. What in the world is he saying here? It's a very outdated uh, way of talking. What is he saying? He's simply saying this. Hey, look, the pleasures of this world, the pleasures of this life, they're great. They're good. In fact, they're so good, you know what you should do? You should make it your life mission to basically indulge and enjoy every possible pleasure out there in the world every day, every time, whenever you have the opportunity to do so. That is what he is saying. Because if you do, what happens? You have such joy in your life. You become so happy. What are you going to do? You're going to spread out that joy and happiness into the world to where you give it fresh impulses of joy. The underlying mindset that Lord Henry is saying about pleasure is if you indulge in it, if you, if you, if you relish in it, you become much happier and your happiness spreads like a wonderful virus to where it makes everyone else happy. It makes the world so much more joyful, much more happier to be in. But conversely, what does he also say in this quote? He says, but... If you don't do that, if you unnaturally deprive yourself of enjoying and indulging and and just really splurging in the great pleasures of life, you become a monster because you subject yourself to what he calls monstrous laws. If you unnaturally abstain, if you resist these yearnings of passions and desires and pleasures that the world gives to you, not only are you going to become a monster, but what happens when a monster is unleashed to the world? It wreaks havoc, right? So that's the hypothesis that Solomon wants to test out. It's a hypothesis that says when you indulge in the pleasures of this world every day, all the time, it brings not only joy into your life, it brings joy to the world to where you and the rest of the world collectively will eventually stop doing this and therefore do this instead. That's the underlying hypothesis. Now, for those of you who have studied philosophy before, 
you'll immediately recognize this hypothesis. You'll recognize it as what? Hedonism. Hedonism. Now, what is hedonism? Hedonism is the philosophical belief that says this, quote, the direction for a good life and reality is the constant search for pleasure and the avoidance of all suffering. This is the definition of hedonism. It's the belief that says the direction for a good life and reality is the constant search for pleasure and the avoidance of all suffering. That's hedonism. And guess what? That also happens to be the growing and predominant belief in our society today. We are living in a hedonistic society now more than ever in U.S. history to where the most important thing, according to our culture, is your personal happiness, your personal satisfaction, your personal fulfillment, i.e., your pleasure, your satisfaction in the pleasures of this world. Case in point. Do you guys know what the highest grossing animated movie of all time is? Out of all the animated movies that came out, Toy Story, Beauty and the Beast, Snow White, right? These major multi-billion dollar movies that came out. What is the highest grossing animated movie of all time so far? You know what it is? Frozen. I kid you not, that movie came out in 2013, and to this day, I'm still listening to that disgusting soundtrack in my car every morning as I'm driving to work, right? Because my kid's like, Anna, Not only is it the highest grossing animated movie of all time, but the soundtrack is the highest grossing soundtrack of all time. And guess which song on that soundtrack is the most revered favorite song of all? Let it go, right? Take a listen to some of the lyrics. It goes like this. I'm not going to sing it, but you're probably going to think I'm singing it. Let it go. Hold on. (laughs) Let it go. I keep wanting to bust into the song every time. Let it go, let it go. Turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. It's funny how some distance makes everything seem small, and the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I am free. What's the message of this song? The message of this song basically goes like this. My personal happiness, my personal satisfaction, my personal fulfillment is the most important thing. And no one, not my family, not my society, not my government is allowed to prevent me from indulging and enjoying the pleasures of life. And if I am being prevented from what gives me pleasure, I'm being incredibly wronged. I'm being incredibly victimized. I am being sinned against. That's the message of the song. And believe it or not, this is becoming the predominant message of our society. You don't believe me? Consider this poll. According to a recent survey, over 41% of Americans, adult Americans under the age of 35, that's all of you in here, over 41% of people like you think that the First Amendment is dangerous. Over 41% of adult Americans under the age of 35 genuinely believe that the First Amendment is dangerous. Why? Because according to these people, they say that if you use your freedom of speech, the First Amendment, you could hurt people's feelings. That's what they say. Oh, no, no, you can't say whatever you want to say, right? Because you might hurt that person's feelings. You know, we are living in a time that says we must be allowed to enjoy things. And no one can say anything about it. No one can criticize us. No one can stop us. No one, must, no, no one should stop us. And if anyone tries to stop us with their words, with their actions, with their judgments, it is wrong. It is the greatest crime, the most greatest outrage against the human being. 
This is the time that we're living in where pleasure ranks the highest priority in our society today. And the question that I want to ask is, is that actually true? Are the pleasures of this world that important? Are they really the greatest priority that we have as human beings to where we must be allowed to enjoy every single one of them at all costs? Well, that is what Solomon tested out. And what he discovered in his observation is really eye-opening. And to share with you some of the observations that he's made, let me go to my next point, the observations Solomon discovered in his test. Take a look again. Let's have the passage up again. Let's take a look again uh, at our passage from verse 2 all the way down to verse 10. Okay? Now, I'm not going to read all of this. Okay? Can we have the passage up, please? Okay. There's a lot here. Okay? And I don't want to read it because it's going to take too long. But nevertheless, Solomon has listed out a lot of information here, a lot of data to his experiment. Okay? He uh, lists out various pleasures that he pursued to see if any of them could alleviate the sense of meaninglessness, the sense of sighing that we tend to feel when we live in a broken reality as we do. Right? He first lists out uh, the pleasures of laughter in verse 2, then the pleasures of alcohol in verse 3. Then he talks about productive work in verses 4, 5, and 6 and how satisfying that can be to us. And then he talks about the pleasures of money and possessions in verses 7 and 8. And then the pleasures of sex in verse 8. And then he goes on to talk about the pleasure of winning and, and dominating and conquering your compet- competition in verse 9. Now, when you just take an initial reading of all these lists of pleasures that he's lists, you can't help but to be thinking, this is like nonsensical. <laughs> this is like, un- you can't understand this, this list of data. Like, you know, when you're studying science, right, and you have a list of data, you have to be able to understand what it's saying, right? It just seems nonsensical here. It just seems like Solomon is just arbitrarily, randomly going from one pleasure to the next to where you don't see any connection to where anything is worth observing to where you think, Solomon, do you know what you're doing? But I think he does know what he's doing because if you study verses 2 to 10 more carefully, you'll notice that an interesting observable pattern emerges the longer you stare at it. It's kind of like one of those things that you see at the mall, those posters. The longer you stare at it, you start seeing like the Statue of Liberty coming out. You ever see one of those weird? Do they still make those things anymore? Right? Probably not. You stare at something and all of a sudden you don't see it and then it pops up. Well, when you do this long enough, you see a pattern. What is the pattern? Well, to show you this pattern, let me use this illustration that many of you science geeks will know right away. Can we have that picture up, please? This right here is the pH scale. Do you guys know what pH even stands for in in chemistry? The power of hydrogen, right? And the pH scale basically is a scale that measures how acidic a solution is or how basic a solution is. Okay, And if you notice, in both of these instances, like the lower the number, the more acidic a solution is, a liquid is. The higher the number, the more basic it is. But look at some of the examples that it puts as having these pH numbers. Uh, A solution with a pH scale of zero, it's battery acid. Not something that you want to drink on a hot hot day, right? But then if you go to the other extreme, you know, something with a scale of 14, what is drain cleaner? Now, you don't want to drink that either, right? And what the pH scale teaches you is that you want to avoid both the beginning and end of this scale, right? Because both of these ends are very dangerous. You don't want to go anywhere near the solutions that have a very low pH or very high pH. You want to avoid the beginning and the end. No, what you want is the sweet spot right in the middle, pH scale number seven. Pure water, the solution of life. 70% of our bodies are made up of water. Water is the element of life, right? 
Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, what in the world are you doing here? Why are you teaching us chemistry on Sunday? We're here to study the Bible. We're not here to study science. Well, I have a bachelor's in biology, so I thought I'd have to make use of it some way. So, no, I'm just joking. No, I have a point. I have a point. Here's my point. If you stare at verses 2 to 10 long enough, you'll see that it functions very similarly to the pH scale. Where if you look at the beginning pleasures at the very beginning of the list, you'll notice that they're very dangerous pleasures. But if you look at the very last, the end pleasures that he lists at the bottom of this list, right, they're also very dangerous pleasures. It's kind of like, you know, he's putting together a, a pleasure scale, not a pH scale, but a pleasure scale to show that both beginning and end are dangerous pleasures. See, what I want to try and show you in this text is that Solomon is saying, look, the pleasures that I list at the very beginning, they're dangerous because they can hurt you. But conversely, you don't want to go to the other end of the pleasure spectrum because if you do, those pleasures are going to make you hurt other people. Let me show you with what I mean. Let's go to beginning in verse 2 to 3. Here, Solomon lists out the pleasures of laughter and wine. Now, if you ever read what Solomon has written elsewhere in the Bible about laughter and wine, you'll know what he is thinking of. You'll know that he's thinking of a specific reason why people tend to go to laughter and wine for pleasure. Let me show you what I mean. This is Proverbs 14 and 31. Listen to what he says there. He says, Proverbs 14, laughter can conceal a heavy heart, but when the laughter ends, the grief remains. Proverbs 31, alcohol is for the dying and wine for those in bitter distress. Let them drink to forget their poverty and remember their troubles no more. Here Solomon writes in both of these Proverbs the underlying reasons why so many people today run to pleasures like alcohol and laughter all the time. Because they're trying to get over, they're trying to escape, they're trying to forget the troubles and bitterness of life. Why? Because they hate their own lives. They hate their own lives. People who hate themselves will run to certain pleasures in this world like laughter and wine as a way to overcome, to medicate, to heal this inner sense of self-hatred. You know, you talk to psychologists, you talk to uh, psychiatrists, they'll tell you all the time. One of the common struggles that people have when they think that their life sucks is that they think they suck. In other words, when people hate their lives, a lot of people internalize that hatred and end up hating themselves, okay? And one of the ways that people try to deal with this self-hatred is, again, trying to medicate it by going to various pleasures and indulging in certain things that they think can kind of heal them of this inner bitter self-hatred. But according to Solomon, he says, that is, verse 2, mad. That is deranged. That is dangerous. Don't do that. Don't use pleasures this way. Why? Well, some of you think, well, I know why, Pastor John. It's kind of obvious. I mean, we've seen it in real life. You know, whenever people overindulge excessively in certain pleasures, it always leads to dangerous consequences, right? You know, if you drink too much, you get liver damage. If you smoke too much, you get brain damage and lung cancer. You know, if you sleep around too much, you get STDs. You know, if you take too much meth, you get meth face. You you become disgusting. You become bitter. You become sick. You become miserable. But believe it or not, that is only the tip of the iceberg because Solomon is trying to show us a more darker and more sinister danger than even those dangers of when you over excessively indulge in pleasures. Let me explain. Consider the tragic example of the recent death of Robin Williams. 
Many of you guys know that last year, the very famous comedian Robin Williams basically killed himself after struggling with years of depression. And for months, people everywhere were asking, how could a guy like this, how could a man who's the master of laughter do something so self-destructive? Well, one psychologist responded to that by writing an article where he says um, in this article, the title of the article is Hunting for the Wise of Depression and Suicide, What Self-Help Hate, What Self-Hate Has to Do With It. He writes this in his article. He says this, quote, Robin Williams' heartbreaking suicide brings depression and suicide to the forefront of everyone's mind, along with remembrances of his many film roles. Ironically, Williams won his only Academy Award for his emotional performance as Sean McGuire, a gifted, underachieving therapist who challenged to reach an intellectually brilliant yet deeply troubled young man in Goodwill Hunting. In the film, Sean's treatment of Will Hunting, Matt Damon's character, confirms my years of psychoanalytic work with patients and sheds light on the considerable influence of self-hate that underlies depression. Williams played the role of therapist brilliantly and sensitively. Given his struggles, perhaps it is no wonder he brought so much to the role of Sean McGuire. Robin Williams battled with such intense self-hatred that he constantly went to laughter as a way to cope, as a way to heal. So much so that he was able to create a successful career out of it. But even when laughter didn't work for him, what did he turn to? He turned to drugs. He turned to alcohol, as he's admitted in many interviews that he's done throughout the years. Right? But in the end, even all of these pleasures were not enough in quieting the self-condemning voices of hatred that he had within him. To the point where he felt like he had no choice but to do the most self-hating thing you could ever do to yourself, which is give up on life, literally, to kill himself. Now, what's the point in all this? Here's the point. Solomon, in his experiment with pleasure, has observed something. He observed that the earthly pleasures in this world, no matter what they are, jokes, laughter, drugs, sex, movies, music, entertainment, Whatever they may be, how wonderful they may be, they're simply inefficient in being able to medicate the inner self-hatred that so many people struggle with as they live in a world that they hate because reality is no friend to them. That's what's going on. That's what Solomon is saying. This is why he says at the end of verse 2, what use is it? You see, Solomon observed that pleasures can be dangerous like ineffective drugs can be dangerous to a very desperate, sick person in the hospital. You know, a desperate, sick person in the hospital where they're on the verge of death, you know what they're hoping for? They're hoping for breakthrough medicine to come through. Some promise that if they pop a pill, have a certain procedure, if they have some fluid bursting through their veins, that all of a sudden they have their hopes of new life awakened. But the more these patients go after drug, after drug, after, after you know, this kind of treatment, that kind of treatment, and it doesn't work, it becomes ineffective, what happens to them? Not only are they physically dying, but they're spiritually dying, right? And Solomon says, that is what's going to happen to you if you go to pleasures as a way of trying to escape and trying to heal the inner self-hatred that all of us will go through when we are confronted with a life that we hate sometimes, maybe all the time. This is the first danger to pleasure that Solomon observed. He has observed disillusion, disappointment with earthly pleasure. So much so that if you cave too much into it, if you crave it too much, you're going to be utterly disappointed to the point of wanting to give up. Maybe literally or maybe just figuratively by just living a life like a zombie, wasting away in some hidden corner of this world. 
Now, some of you are hearing this, and you're not too worried about this danger that Solomon has observed in his experiment. You're not too worried. Because why? Because you don't struggle with self-hatred. You know, maybe your life isn't going well. Maybe life sucks, but you never think you suck. Maybe there are moments in your life where you think you hate your life, but you never hate yourself, right? Maybe you're one of those people who's just so optimistic to where even though you have to struggle, even though reality is no friend of yours, you never get to the point where you have to depend on pleasure. You don't look to pleasure to be your hope. So when you indulge in pleasure and pleasure doesn't really give back what you're hoping for, you're okay with it, right? In other words, you are not like Robin Williams to where you look to pleasure to heal self-hatred inside of you because you don't think you struggle with self-hatred. And so as a result, you think, hey, I'm cool. I'm safe. I'm just going to enjoy every possible pleasure because pleasure could never disappoint me because I never put that kind of expectation on pleasure anyway. Let's party on, right? But if you think that way, Solomon has a warning for you because there's a second observation that Solomon discovered in his experiment with pleasure. Take another look at what he says in verse 7 and 8. Here he describes pleasures that includes what? Having slaves, having tons of wealth that belong to other people, other kings, other provinces. And then he talks about having concubines, women to whom he had sex with nonstop, however he wanted, whenever he wanted. Now, one of the common themes that you see in these list of pleasures at the end of our passage that you'll notice is that there's this recurring theme of someone wanting to conquer someone else, dominate someone else, hurt someone else in order for them to get pleasure from it. Take a listen. He speaks of the pleasure of conquering another human being, treating them like property to where they can buy and sell as slaves, verse 7. He talks about the pleasures of defeating other kings in battle and invading other nations, other provinces, so he could steal what is rightfully theirs, their property, their resources, their money. Verse 8, then he speaks of, in verse 8, the pleasures of conquering many women in the bedroom. Women who most likely belonged to the nations that he conquered. Women who most likely were married to other men whom he killed on the battlefield. He's now brought into his chamber so he could ravish them with his perverted sexual delights. See, as you read the last pleasures, the end of the pleasure spectrum that he lists out here in our passage, you'll notice that Solomon is becoming worse and worse as a human being as he starts enjoying more darker and darker pleasures. Listen again to how he was describing his growing condition as he was experimenting with darker pleasures in verse 10. He says this, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Here Solomon is showing us that the more he indulged in the pleasures of this earth, the more vile the more violent he became as a human being to the point that he was willing to deprive other people of their safety, their freedom, and their basic human rights just so that he can enjoy these pleasures. Here we see another observation Solomon made in his experiment with pleasure. And that observation goes like this. For some reason, the pleasures of this world can awaken an evil monster inside of us to where they develop a taste for more perverse and more disgusting pleasures that hurt other people. Let me say that again. For some reason, the pleasures of this world awaken an evil monster inside of us to where we can develop a taste for pleasures that are violent, that are disgusting, that are perverse, that hurt other people. So there you have it. 
the two dangers that Solomon observed in his experiment with pleasure. Observation number one, pleasures will leave you being hopeless because they're unable to heal the inner self-hatred that is common to all of us to where we can end up wanting to hurt ourselves. Or observation number two, the pleasures of this world, if you go too far with them, will make you into a monster to where you're willing to hurt other people. And so now we ask ourselves as good scientists, why do these observations exist? How do you explain these observations? Why is it that the pleasures of this world can either cause us to hate ourselves or to hate other people, to hurt ourselves or to hurt other people? Why? And furthermore, is there a way that we can avoid these dangers? And if there isn't, does that mean as followers of Jesus that we cannot indulge and celebrate and, and enjoy the pleasures of this world? Is that what that means? Well, in order to answer these questions, let me go to my final point, the conclusion to Solomon's test. Wedged between the pleasures of the self-hating person in verses 2 to 3 and the other hating person in verses 7 to 8, you have the pleasures of verses 4 to 6. Let's read it again where it says this. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was reading this, I was like, what is this? <laughs> like planting trees, creating pools, and building houses. Like, you know, when he talks about the other pleasures that he experimented with, wine, laughter, you know, money. It's like, yeah, I can totally get it. I think I would find that exciting. But then he's talking about, then I did fruit trees, and I built houses. When was the last time you ever hung out with your friends on the weekend, and you're like, hey, what do you want to do? Let's plant a fruit tree together. We don't really see that as a pleasurable experience, right? If you do, come talk to me. Let me give you some counseling. But, right? It, like you read this and you're like, what is this? Why is Solomon listing out a bunch of pleasures, as he calls it, that none of us would find pleasurable? It doesn't make any sense. No offense for those of you who may find this pleasurable, but I think I can speak for most of us. I don't think many of us find pleasure in doing these things. Because if you do, you're living in the wrong city, right? So, What's going on? Why is Solomon listing these pleasures that most of us don't find pleasurable? It's almost as if he's thinking of a particular person as he writes out this particular list of pleasures. Ah, maybe that's it. Maybe that's the point. For those of you who are familiar with your Bible, who have studied your Bible, let me give you a quick pop quiz. Can you take an educated guess on which famous character in the Bible who could possibly take pleasure in these pleasures that he lists out. Is there anyone in the Bible that you can think of that you think, who in the Bible would enjoy doing these things, except for Solomon since he's the one writing? Is there anyone else in the Bible who would take great delight in planting trees and making gardens and watering forests of trees? Yeah. Well, let me give you a hint by reading to you this passage in Genesis 2. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens... Neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth. And there was no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. And he breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils. And the man became a living person. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground. Trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend it and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except 
the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, surely you will die. Who is this man that Genesis 2 is talking about? It's referring to Adam, right? The very first human being that God ever created, Adam. Specifically, it's describing Adam before he fell into sin, before he disobeyed God and committed what was known as the original sin, right? Here's the question. Why does Solomon seem to be describing the pleasure preferences of Adam in verses 4 to 6? Here's why. Listen carefully. Solomon is telling us that we need to have the same perspective of pleasure that God was trying to teach Adam in the Garden of Eden. One more time. Solomon is telling us that we need to have the same perspective of pleasure that God was trying to teach Adam when he placed them in the Garden of Eden. Go back to that passage in Genesis 2. Notice what Adam tells, God tells Adam in verse 6. He says what? Freely eat of every tree in the garden. Freely eat from every tree in the garden, which in verse 14 he says was very beautiful and what? Very delicious, very pleasurable to eat. God is telling Adam that he is allowed to legitimately enjoy the pleasures of this earth, right? Which includes eating yummy food. And this is very important for us to understand because what does this tell us? It tells us that when God created you, when God created me, when he created all of us, he created us to enjoy the pleasures of this world, okay? Whether you're talking about good food, whether you're talking about fun parties, whether you're talking about amazing art, cool technology, God created all of us to enjoy the pleasures of this world. You know, contrary to what your youth pastor, you know, might have taught you in Sunday school, you know, that youth pastor, that proverbial youth pastor who who makes you come to retreat and throw your favorite, you know, music or video game console or your favorite clothing into the fire, right? You need, if you want to be godly, you can take no pleasure in this world, right? That is so unbiblical because here we see in this passage that God intended for you to enjoy the things of this earth. He intended for you to enjoy the pleasures of this earth. But listen again to what he tells Adam. God tells Adam in verse 17 of Genesis 2. What he says, basically, let me paraphrase. He says this, look, Adam, you can eat, you can take delight, you can take pleasures in the things of this world. You can eat from any of these delicious, yummy trees that are out there. But there's one tree, there's one tree, son, I don't want you to eat. The tree from the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that tree because if you do, you're going to (laughs) die. I don't know if God said it that way, but... For the sake of drama, you're going to die. Now, when most people read this kind of what I paraphrase in verse 17, they most always interpret it in the worst possible light to where they interpret God in the worst possible light. When they read God's prohibition in verse 17 from Adam to not eat from that tree, they think, man, what is wrong with God? Why is he being so stingy? Why is he being so selfish? And some people even go so far and say, you know what God is doing? He's rubbing it in Adam's face that he's simply a servant of God, right? And to prove it, he's just randomly arbitrarily arbitrarily not letting him eat from this one random tree, right? Probably looks the, the most delicious tree out there, right? Just to rub it in his face. I don't think that's what God is trying to teach Adam. I don't think that's what he's trying to teach him at all, right? What if by not letting Adam eat from this tree... God is simply trying to teach Adam that there's a limit to how much earthly pleasures can give him. What if by not allowing Adam to eat from this specific tree, he's trying to teach Adam to stay hungry, literally in his stomach, but also spiritually in his heart by leaving room for a pleasure that maybe this earth cannot provide. 
What if God wants to prevent Adam from thinking that he can be completely satisfied with just only earthly pleasures? What if instead he's trying to teach Adam, look, don't overindulge in earthly pleasures. Leave room because there's another pleasure that is not of this world. And to show me that you really believe this, don't eat everything. Leave that one piece aside because you know something better is coming. What if that is what God is trying to teach Adam? What if that is what God is trying to teach us? Listen to how one pastor, Mark Buchanan, puts it. He writes this, quote, Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That was the cry of the writer of Ecclesiastes after he had opened all the gifts and not found the one thing he needed. Here is the surprise. God made us this way. He made us to yearn, to always be hungry for something we can't get, to always be missing something we can't find, to always be disappointed with what we receive, to always have an insatiable emptiness that nothing can fill and an untamable restlessness that no discovery can still. Yearning itself is healthy, a kind of compass inside of us pointing to true north. You see, by prohibiting Adam from eating from this particular tree in the Garden of Eden, God is trying to teach him and us that we are not only designed to enjoy the pleasures of this world, but in addition, we are designed also to enjoy pleasures that are not of this earth. The writer here, Mark Buchanan, says true north. The Bible calls it what? Heaven. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven. But here's the thing. If you don't believe that, if you only believe that the only pleasures that are out there, right, are on this earth, that there are no other pleasures and no other realm elsewhere in reality, two possible things are going to happen to you, okay? Possibility number one, you're going to live your life in this broken reality, Right? You come to a point where you're going to hate it, maybe even hate yourself, internalize that hate, and you go after pleasure upon pleasure upon pleasure, and you're not going to find anything that is going to heal this sense of inner frustration and hatred against yourself. And what are you going to do? You're going to prematurely conclude that there is no pleasure in existence that can heal you. That's what you're going to conclude. When you make a premature conclusion, that's the same thing as making a wrong conclusion, Right? When you prematurely conclude, that means you have not gone beyond what you need to go beyond in order to learn and have a conclusion to, right? That's the first danger. The second danger, and this is more important that I want you to consider, when you don't believe that you are created for pleasures beyond this realm, even though the Bible says you are, right, and you go after pleasure upon pleasure, what's going to happen eventually? As you go through the normal standard pleasures that are out there in this world, Right? Falling in love, having children, you know, eating good food. Right? But it just doesn't fit because, after all, you're designed for pleasures beyond this world. If these normal pleasures don't happen, right, what happens? You get bored. You get bored, right? Here's a little bit of a question for you. What happens when you combine boredom with the belief that the only pleasures that exist are in this world? What kind of byproduct happens in that very dangerous equation. You know what happens? You become curious in a very bad way. What do I mean? Think about it. If you think that you're only created for the pleasures of this world, that the pleasures that exist are only in this world, and you go to the normal, appropriate pleasures that are out there that God gave us, but they're just not fitting, right? What's left? The pleasures that are taboo, right? The pleasures that are abnormal, the pleasures that are dark, the pleasures that you initially may have not even been curious about. But if you have this boredom and dissatisfaction with the normal pleasures of life, 
to where marriage isn't as pleasurable anymore as it was when you first got married. Maybe having an affair, which you never thought you would do, is something you're more open to. Right? Because after all, if this is the only place where pleasure exists, if this is the only realm and I need pleasure, where am I going to get it? If it doesn't exist elsewhere in this reality, if it doesn't exist in another realm, then i got to try and find it in this realm. Maybe I have to cross the other side. Maybe I have to cross that darkness. Maybe I have to do something that years ago I thought I would never do. Maybe things I have to consider and be open-minded to that I thought would have been disgusting and perverted. When you don't think that you are created for pleasures in another realm but only for this realm and you get bored, all of a sudden you become more open-minded to things that you should never be open-minded to because when you get open-minded to those pleasures, you hurt family, you hurt children, you hurt society. You see, it's when you do not believe that you are created for another realm to enjoy pleasures of another realm, that you fall into the two dangers of pleasures that Solomon has noticed in his experiment, which means the only way you can avoid them is you have to hold on to the belief that you do belong to another realm and that there are pleasures in that other realm that you can never get here and should never chase after it as if it's here. That is what Solomon is trying to teach us. And here's the thing. How do you believe that? How do you hold on to the belief that, yes, there are pleasures of another realm that you are meant for? The only way is by believing the gospel. Because what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says, even though God should hate you because you are a sinner, he doesn't. Why doesn't he hate you? Because he loved you so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, Right? To be your savior, to die on the cross for your sins, past, present, and future, to where you're completely forgiven. And now what? Because you're forgiven, you are completely lovable in Jesus. God does not hate you. He loves you. Which means what? If God loves you, then there's no reason for you to hate yourself. Even when life is not going well, even if the reality that you live in is no friend of yours, even when there are moments where you hate things going on in your life, you will never internalize that hatred against yourself to where you end up hating yourself and therefore craving some sort of immediate pleasure to gratify you, to heal you. No, the love of Christ is the pleasure that heals you, that prevents you from even developing any self-hatred or it heals you of any self-hatred that develops when you forget the gospel. But when you're reminded of the gospel again, you see? The gospel gives us the pleasure that we need the most to heal us of any moments of uncertainty of ourselves or hatred against ourselves because we misinterpret the burdens and the difficulties of life. The gospel is reminding us that the God of all the earth who is the judge, the most accurate judge, the most honest judge, the most true judge of all says there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing to which you are worthy to be hated. I love you in Christ. How would you ever come to the conclusion, therefore, that you need to hate yourself? Are you claiming to have greater authority than the judge of all the earth? Don't you see? The gospel is what protects you from falling into the danger that Robin Williams, unfortunately, did not avoid. That's what the gospel gives us. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But wait, there's more. The gospel goes on to tell us that it's because of this Jesus who loves us so much that he made sure that you wouldn't be deprived of what? The greatest pleasure of all, which according to the Bible is what? Having God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, where? 
in his kingdom, in his presence forever and ever and ever. That's the gospel as well. When you believe that Jesus secured the best pleasure for you all in heaven, wait, excuse me, let me say this again. When you believe that Jesus secured the best pleasure of all in heaven for you by going through the worst suffering in hell for you, that means you're going to have confidence that the best is yet to come. Which means when you go through this life and you find yourself being dissatisfied with the pleasures of this world, when you find yourself getting bored, you don't feel threatened by that boredom. You don't feel the need to go out and investigate and, and go trespass into certain areas of life, certain pleasures of life that are very dangerous. No. You know that this boredom that you're going through as you live in this realm, it's normal. And in fact, it's expected because you're not yet home. You're not yet part of the true place where you belong. You're not back in your true country. And in fact, your boredom is a good indication that you're being reminded of where you belong where you're going to head, and who you're going to be with. The pleasure that will give you hope. The pleasure that's going to make you no longer go like this, but instead go, yes. Ah. Listen to how C.S. Lewis puts it in his book, Mere Christianity. He writes this. The Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. What is he saying? Being bored, being dissatisfied, that's okay. That's a good thing because that is simply your heart saying, this is not your true country. This is not your home. There is a home where there is a pleasure that will finally, fully alleviate any sense of self-hatred, a pleasure that your boredom is crying out for, a pleasure that you can only find there who's, who's with God. <laughs> that is what Lewis is saying. And the only way you have that hope is if you trust in the hope of the gospel, when you trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. So let me end my sermon by asking you this, brothers and sisters. Do you believe this? Do you believe that this is true? You know, one of the best ways that we know whether or not we really believe what we claim to believe is how we live our lives. So let me ask you, how are you living your life? How are you doing your life in terms of your experiment with pleasure? Solomon is not the only one in our passage who didn't attest with pleasure. All of us in here, whether we realize it or not, we are conducting an experiment with our lives with regard to pleasure, aren't we? And my question to you is, 
Have you observed the dangers or are you heading right into it? Have you forgotten what the truth of the gospel says to where you are endangering yourself or you're going to be in a danger source for somebody else? Are you indulging in pleasures in such a way because you're trying to find some medication to a soul that you hate so much? Or are you indulging in pleasures in such a way that shows that you hate other people? You see, Lord Henry says that when you indulge in pleasures, you make the world a better place. Scripture says the more you indulge in pleasures in the way that goes against the way God intended for it, the more worse this place is going to be. And the more worse you're going to be. And so my question to you, NCF, if you want to take on this mission that we are called to live out of being a blessing to the world, is that being reflected in your experimentations, in your testing, in your investigations with the pleasures of this world? If you are not careful, you are headed for danger and those around you are headed for danger. My charge to you is trust in what Scripture says about the gospel. Because if you do, you can enjoy the pleasures of this world, but you will enjoy it in a way to where you will not hurt yourself and you will not hurt other people. You will not abuse the pleasures of the world because you hate yourself, nor will you abuse it because you hate other people. What is your choice going to be? Let us pray. Father, as we think more and more, as we live in a city that is filled with innumerable pleasures and as we are confronted with the reality of our boredom, with the frustrations of our size, Lord, we come to you now asking for your grace. Father, it is very easy for us to waver between two extremes of being hateful to ourselves or hateful to our neighbor. And Lord, we know that all of it stems from a disbelief in the hope that we have through your son Jesus, the hope of being with you forever in that glorious place that we call our home, our inheritance, the heavenly palace, the kingdom of God to which we were created for. And so, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that as they live in this city that promises to bring heaven to earth, God, I pray that they would not fall into that lie, but instead they would look to Jesus and remind them of the heavenly place that he is now preparing for each and every one of them. And, Father, I pray for those of us here who are investigating Christianity. I pray for those here especially who have made the same conclusions, the same observational conclusions that Solomon has made, that the pleasures of this world are so insufficient and can even be dangerous. God, I hope and pray that today's message resonated with them in such a way that it brought such clear, tangible verification that the gospel is true and that Jesus is who he claims to be. Father, I pray that this would be our conviction. And as a result, we would make this world better, not more, worse than what it was before we came and received the glorious gospel. Father, help us to live out this mission of being a blessing to the world, not simply being a parasite that ends up hurting ourselves and our host. Lord, help us to be a people who seeks to be a blessing because we know that the greatest pleasure of blessing of all is for us with you, Jesus, in the new realm to come. We ask that you give us that faith to endure in Jesus' name. Amen. We're now going to give the Lord his tithes and our offering. If you're visiting us today, we don't expect you to give. But to our members, let's give to God his tithes and our offerings.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we come before you humbly offering, uh, offering up our prayers and our lives to you. Lord, I pray that you may just take this offering and use it for your kingdom here on this earth. I pray for Pastor John, Pastor James, and their families. May you continue to use them for your kingdom and continue to bless them. Give them strength and renew them so that they can lead NCF to truly be a blessing to this world. Lord, I pray that you may just give their families good health and protect them from all that the enemy may throw at them. I pray for the members of this congregation who come here every Sunday faithfully to worship you. Uh, Lord, you know each and every one of our hearts. May you bless each and every one of us and answer our prayers. Lord, this world is so wicked and constantly tempts us, but we trust in you and believe that you are with us every step of the way. Help us to overcome every obstacle and give us strength so that even through our suffering, we can grow closer to you. Uh, Lord, I I especially pray for uh, the college students who are back here for the summer. May you be with them during this time of relaxation and let them use this time wisely to grow in their knowledge of you as well. If any of them are unsure of their futures, Lord, I pray that you may just give them clarity so that they can have peace in their hearts and not be worried about their futures. Lord, thank you for your message given to us through Pastor John today. Let it resound in our hearts and not just go through one year and out the other. May we find our identity and self-worth in you so that we will not be misled by the false promises of this world and not overindulge in the dangerous pleasures of this world. Help us to know in our hearts that the ultimate pleasure is being with you so that we can glorify you and enjoy you forever. Uh, Lord, we bring our burdens and our sufferings at the foot of the cross. Help us to be able to cast our anxieties and our worries to you and place our hope and trust in you. Be with us and let your will be done in our lives. We lift up this prayer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand and join us as we end with this last song.
May the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be with you all. Brothers and sisters, hold out your hand and receive the benediction. May the amazing and saving grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the unfailing and everlasting love of the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore.